0: This is a Glass Box Media podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known guests about their lives, their careers and negotiating those difficult moments on the way. I'm Charles Prady-Phillips and with me is Jim Daly.
2: Oh, I like that. Straight to it. Mm. Straight into it. Um, No, this is Jimmy. (laughs) Uh, Just
1: straight into like
2: serious stuff because we've got quite a serious pod today we got a very serious pod, and we should say as well, we are back after a break last week for another serious subject, because mm. it was the week of the uh, the Queen's funeral, so we felt like it would be the right thing to do to take a week off. A lot of pods taking weeks off, so we thought we would have a break so that people can get through that day however they wanted to, I guess, as respectfully as possible, so that's why we're, we're back there. So yeah, we are starting with a serious subject there, and then obviously this week's episode, some very serious subjects as well, but very
1: enjoyable at the same time. Oh, it's fascinating. I don't think I've written as many notes before the pod or during the pod yeah. as with this week's guest, um, who is the amazing Ash- Andrew Bustamante, who is um, a former CIA intelligence officer. So a little bit different to what we normally do. But as we said a few weeks back, we we're looking to talk to some um, interesting people in other industries. And obviously, Andrew's got an incredible story. And uh you know, we talk about his recruitment process, his background in the in the armed forces in the US, and then all manner of questions that we had about being a CIA
2: intelligence agent. And he uh, was just so fascinating. He He's one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my entire life, I think. But also is really, has his own business now, everyday spy and has a podcast. He's very good at sort of like talking about it mm. as well. So um, he, you know, very very graciously answered a lot of our very sort of like uh, entry level questions uh, about about being a spy and um, but there's some really really good bits in there about sort of like coping with the the, you know extreme stresses of the situation and 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 the egos of some of the spies and, Mm. and and all sorts of things that go with it you know you watch these we ask him about kind of like spy movies and how true they are and stuff, but you watch those kind of movies and actually it doesn't even really scratch the surface of what it's like to be a spy, but fascinating individual. And, you know, he had to sort of pop off early, but like we could have chatted to him for hours and um, maybe he'll come on one day again and answer the rest of our questions because he was just, oh, an absolute joy to talk to him. A fascinating, fascinating
1: life. Yeah. Really, really um, interesting. The whole thing. And like you say, we, you kind of think of spies, you think of James Bond or Mission Impossible and um they just seem ludicrous when you actually talk to someone who's actually worked for a serious as a serious spy. Uh and just yeah, you know, thinking that James Bond is actually properly shit, isn't he? As a as a
2: <laughs> Yeah. As a we didn't get to ask him about what he thought about like he, he did he did actually he 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 gives uh during the episode a few um a few series that he thinks and movies that he thinks are like truest to form. Mm. So listen to those if you are like a fan of that genre, to which I like closest to what it is actually like. But we didn't actually get to ask him about James Bond. But yeah, I'm sure he would have said that James Bond is terrible. <laughs> yeah. An awful spy. Well, it just tells everyone his name and yeah, where he yeah. is and yeah. favourite drink. And, yeah, you yeah. know what drink he drinks. You know what kind of, you know, you
1: know he's got a PP44, whatever it is. He's PP yeah. whatever his gun is. I don't know, can't remember what it is. Walter PPK or something, isn't it? Um You, you just know everything about him. Uh He's just, yeah. It, I mean, it's classic kind of british dandy flop uh isn't he? <laughs> yeah.
2: there's, so. there's an interesting bit from andrew about like the difference between mm. u.s uh clandestine <laughs> services and 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 the british as well and mi6 and stuff and, and actually uh yeah stuff i didn't know about at all really and why would i but yeah it's um really really fascinating and just yeah great guest so um, and as you said, we're, we're trying some different things this series. I guess um, we're technically on one one long ro- rolling series, but since coming back from our break, we're trying a few sort of different things, and this is definitely one of them. So mm. we, we hope our listeners appreciate it and uh, and enjoy this episode because uh, it's a good one.
1: Yeah, like you said, we could have talked to Andrew for a long time, and like you say, maybe we'll get him back on um, to answer some of our other questions because I had shit loads of other questions I wanted to ask him. So. <laughs> um hopefully we can persuade him to come and talk to us again but yeah it was great to talk to him and um appreciate him being on the, the podcast
2: and there's a little bit extra from him as well for our patrons as there is every episode at patron.com dot com slash blank podcast So if you want to hear a bit more from andrew then do sign up to our patron there's only one level it's four pound a month and you get extra content you get the episode advert free and you get it 24 hours early as well so yeah, you get it early yeah. You get to hear it yeah.
1: before the rest of the world
2: gets to hear it. I mean, what exactly. more could you want? Yeah, you get exclusive basically for for for, for 24, 24 hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> but what a 24 hours. My exactly, word. exactly. Um, so yeah, please do sign up if you uh, if you want to hear more from Andrew and for all our guests um as well. Shall we crack on with the episode? Shall we get into it? Yeah, I
1: think so because we haven't had any correspondence this week.
2: No, we were going to do a shout out. Like, like the, mm. uh, our Twitter feed's gone a bit quiet. So, so do you know if, if you're in, if you're enjoying the episode, maybe no one's enjoying them. If you're enjoying the pod, and uh the, well, you know, if you're not enjoying they're... it, just let <laughs> us know. You know, would we'll, we'll try and make it better. It. Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll take constructive criticism. Um, you know, if any bits that jump out of you, maybe going through the old episodes. You know, maybe you're going through the first the first handful. Anything that jumps out of you or anything you enjoy please do let us know, and we might read it out. In the future as well. So there's a little incentive. Um, We'd love to blank. read it out. We'd love to. Actually, We'd love to. Actually, actually, yeah. We'd actually love some content to, to read yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on uh, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And our handle for all three is. At blank pod. And just to say that, you know,
1: we do really, really appreciate any messages because Jim and I are suckers for validation
2: completely completely you know we don't quite have the ego of um uh, a cia spy no but we've still got pretty big egos. we've got so, egos um, we've got the egos of two amateur
1: podcasters <laughs> <laughs> aka rubbish spies um or we're professional speak, well, no we're professional podcasters aren't we because
2: we're probably we, professional yeah, podcasters, yeah but, i think we can say rubbish spies. yeah rubbish spies yeah yeah definitely yeah not exactly spies. Um, but speaking of a very well, good although what a good cover well, quite. I mean, who? I mean, maybe I'm not, maybe I am a spy, you know, but, but I wouldn't tell you. fit tell the you. profile of a, of a, of a, of a spy yeah. in England, basically. Boring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which Andrew does reveal later on. Yeah. So uh, maybe I am a spy. Yeah, maybe it has been, a, you know, hiding in plain sight. Maybe that's the best way to be. Mm. So, What secrets would we get from the podcast? Actually, a lot of
1: secrets. Down at Chesham so, United on a
2: Saturday. Exactly. A lot of interesting people go down mm. there. So, uh, Including a former podcast guest. Although he wasn't there on Thursday, but um anyway, I think we'll crack on with this week's. Yeah, this week's episode talking shit long enough. <laughs> um, quick edit here for editing. I need to make sure that I say Andrew's name right. And I don't. Let me, give me two seconds. Bustamonte, Bustamonte. Mm-hmm. Cool. This is the fascinating, the wonderful, the lovely Andrew Bustamonte on the Blank Podcast.
1: Music. well Andrew thank you so much for being with us we really do appreciate your time um coming on to talk to us and I guess that's kind of where I want to start is 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 this sort of concept of the, that you talk about what you've been through, your experiences working with the CIA. And I wondered what kind of led you to that, what led you to being so candid about your experiences and and wanting to talk to various people about what you've done.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's not a question that I get very often, to be honest. Uh, I think a big part of what drove me to, to have this open conversation about my time at CIA and an open conversation about CIA in general is that... There's so much that people don't share about the agency, and I don't know why they don't share it. Because when I left, they were very express about what we could and couldn't talk about. And what we couldn't talk about is a very small fraction of the work that we actually do there. So coming out of those doors, walking across that marble seal to, to leave, you know, I was left with this open question, like, why hasn't anyone shared the good news story why hasn't anyone shared the everyday life story why hasn't anyone shared you know the journey all we do is we we put this unnecessary secret around this this mystery that isn't actually helpful or healthy so uh you know i kind of endeavored from that point on to say well i'm going to be very open in my personal life talking about cia and then that just developed into a business
2: is 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 there a fear from like previous people that have worked there that if I say, I mean, I know they there is stuff you can and can't, but even the stuff you can, the slight fear that if I say stuff, I might expose stuff. I don't know.
3: Yeah, there's I would say there's kind of two or three different fears, right? The, the first round of fear is based in culture. So we're a secret culture. I mean, I come from something, a, a unit that was called the National Clandestine Service. So, yeah. clandestine is at the core of that. So, culturally, we're a very secretive bunch. Even when we go out and we hang out together, we still lie to each other. We still <laughs> keep secrets from each other. <laughs> so, culturally, it's hard to break that, that history of secrets. And then there was a really big break... In our culture, in 2001, in September of 2001, when 9/11 happened, and we realized how our our culture of secrecy had essentially left the United States vulnerable to this attack over 9/11, and then Congress came in and forced this massive change in how the intelligence community worked. So you have this old guard of pre 9/11 people, who were you know a small group of very like you know very much a good old boys club. Very, very secretive, very, you know, uh, closed. And then this giant surge of new hiring post 9-11, which is, you know, also a, a big break in terms of culture, generational cultures with millennials and with, you know, Gen Yers and whatever else. But uh, but then post 9-11, we come in. I was a post 9-11 person. We're trained right out of the gates in share, 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 communicate, over communicate, right? Completely countercultural mm-hmm to the old heads who are now in charge of CIA. Mm. So there's these two cultures trying to merge, uh, and it's not merging very well. You also have the bureaucratic process. It's a very slow process. So even though Congress had told CIA they had to change, that doesn't mean that CIA overnight is going to rewrite all of its policies. And it doesn't mean – and the government in general, the government doesn't adapt very quickly. So now Mm. I find myself leaving CIA in 2014 – Look at, <clears throat> look at the world in 2014 and you have podcasts, you have YouTube, you have Instagram, you have stories, you have Snapchat, you have, you know, a whole world of technology that allows people to talk, but CIA doesn't update their policies to tell their CIA officers how to use these platforms. So, uh, a little bit of what I'm doing is experimental talking about it all. Um, uh, I, I do know that there are very real Legal repercussions if I overstep my bounds. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize that there's a story about the men and women still living in that world of secrecy that is really very beneficial to not just the American people, but the entire worldwide public because every country has a clandestine service, but not every country is allowed to talk about it. The UK is one of those fantastic examples where they just. They denied it altogether until the 90s. Uh, and even now, MI6 officers don't retain rights to their own stories.
2: Wow. So we are very different than in this country. We're, 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 we're very British <laughs> yeah, about it. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's, a, it's an interesting thing. In the United States, we can leave CIA and we can write books and we can, we can make movies or we can do whatever we want to do with our story because it, we, re, we retain rights to copyright to our story. MI6 officers, the day they swear, they swear their allegiance or they swear their oath, um, they sign a piece of paper that says that MI6 owns their personal story rights. MI6 owns all book rights. MI6 owns all movie rights. Any money that person ever generates in the future, they're basically at MI6's discretion for how much they'll get paid. hmm wow yeah you guys are kind of ruthless yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again you're gonna say British. that it, 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 <laughs> you yeah it's not, history, not so much uh, fun yeah. being james
1: bond after all um let's let's talk a bit about your journey because i know you grew up in a military family um it it sort of seems that you were destined to join the military yourself is that fair fair to say
3: you know it's funny it, i would say yes it's it was it's a fair thing to say even though every part of me did not want to join okay. the military. <laughs> Right, like when you grow up in a military family, and for anybody out there who's grown up in a military family, they know what I'm talking about. It's like I don't want to do I don't I don't like I was doing the dishes at like seven years old, in, as if I was working in boot camp, and it was miserable. So why would I voluntarily sign up for that after I turned 18? Um, but it was yeah. all I had ever known. So there was a certain element of of the familiar, and the routine was very comfortable. So when the time came to look for colleges. Uh, I, my parents didn't have any money saved up because their assumption was always, I was going to go into the military. Mm. So my odds and my options were kind of limited. I didn't want to take on a bunch of debt. And then when I started looking at scholarships, uh, a military college was the highest paying scholarship with the most long-term opportunity. And that's the direction I ended up going for very pragmatic reasons, as much as I would love to say that I was just a, you know, red blooded patriot. It was really just, <laughs> I didn't want to take on a bunch of school debt. Yeah, <laughs> I, think
2: that's, I think that's probably the process for a lot of people actually when it comes to those kind of choices in their life That
3: actually it's you know
2: not always following your heart or whatever or dreams it's unfortunately pragmatism sort of has to come into these things doesn't it because a lot of us don't maybe have the options or the choices or the opportunities that maybe other people have sometimes you just have to kind of go where you can go
3: yeah exactly and it's it's really interesting because when i found myself taking that path Uh, as as we so often do, that's when I learned how terrible I was at being a soldier. It was funny. I was just talking to somebody recently, like my entire, in many ways, when I look at my journey, and I think it's probably the common for many of us, for successful people, especially we look at our own life, our own journey, and all we see is how much we sucked along the way. I was a horrible student. I was a horrible soldier. I was a mediocre officer at CIA. Like I just you know there's so much i could have done better everywhere and in the in the best effort of just trying to survive and best effort of just trying to hash together something that i enjoyed along the way i realized i i wasn't very good at anything really <laughs> so
2: and, and is, is, is is that true or is that you being a, a harsh critic on yourself like if we asked to anyone you'd worked with they would say no he was he was great
3: yeah no i there's and that's where that's where the rub is right because we're always our own harshest critic. So I'm, yeah. I'm certain, but I'm also the only person that has the complete point of view. I'm the one that knows how, mm. how much energy I actually have. I'm the one that knows every time I cut a corner. I'm the one that knows every yeah. time I jump to a conclusion, every time I skip doing a little extra research. Um, but it is, it is encouraging to know that the people that I uh, find myself surrounded by all the time are high achieving, high performing people that impress me. So that must mean that to other people, even if it's just a few, I must also appear as high performing high achieving, so I'm finding myself in the right company. I might as well keep doing what i'm doing
2: absolutely yeah
1: so did so you you said you you felt like it wasn't a particularly enjoyable time, maybe being in the military what um <laughs> did what were there any aspects of it that you did enjoy though were there were there aspects of it that you flourished?
3: Yeah, so for sure. Uh, the the military is where I discovered I had a language proficiency. Without having gone to the military academy, without having them told me, like they, they put me through a test and they said, hey, you should learn Chinese. You should learn Chinese or Japanese or Arabic or uh, Korean. And when they gave me those four options, because the military is so generous, 166 languages and they gave me four. Uh, <laughs> so... So, yeah, so that was how I ended up, you know, signing up for Chinese. And then I found out that I was, I was pretty good at Chinese and I would have never known that otherwise. Uh, And that was a really amazing opportunity to learn the language, to travel through the country, to build friendships with other Chinese speakers, not just in my university, but in universities across the country, which in 2002, there weren't many Chinese speaking universities or Chinese language uh, courses so that was one thing that I would, I would have never discovered. I also would have never discovered my own athletic uh, ability. Uh, had I had the military not forced me into a regimented you know physical training routine with a very closely monitoring, like a very closely monitored process for tracking our progress and our growth. So they knew when to turn up the dial and they had they took care mm-hmm. of your dietary needs. they took care of your uh, of your coaching needs and you know before I knew it, I was a better athlete than I would have ever been. I had a language I would have never had. Uh, I was learning how to fly. I realized, you know, uh, I had learned how to to fly, how to parachute, how to glide, all these things that, you know, a a rural Pennsylvania boy isn't going to learn how to do these things unless, you know, Uncle Sam basically pays the bill. Mm -hmm. So it was really a fascinating thing to discover what I enjoyed and what I was good at in a world that, you know, I would have never had access to had I stayed, you know, back at home
2: yeah and i wonder does that does that sort of like thirst for um i guess personal improvement and learning new things do you does that continue to this day do you find yourself still desperate to learn new stuff skills and languages and stuff that was maybe bred while you were in the military
3: yeah absolutely what what i found is that it it doesn't take much it's like a mosquito bite experience is like a mosquito bite you know you get a, a bug bite if you're if you're allergic to mosquitoes like i am and that bite that itch is just incessant you'll scratch your own skin off yeah. trying to yeah. trying to scratch that itch and that's exactly what happened to me once the once the military got a hold of me and took me out of Pennsylvania and then they started teaching me how to shoot and teaching me how to navigate across the land and how to do seer seer, seer school and they put me in foreign countries and all of a sudden like life became this adventure this mm. it became this smorgasbord of experiences that I absolutely wanted to have. I didn't care if it was a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience. I kept telling myself, like, who gets to do this? I remember being in Seer School, um, and I was in, in the survival part of Seer School, and we were up in the mountains in Colorado. It was the summer uh, of, 2000, of 2000, the summer of 2000. And it was uh, there was a forest fire raging not far from where our survival school was happening. And every day... The instructors would get a briefing on whether or not they had to evacuate us from this forest fire, and even though there was a forest fire looming, there were uh, standing puddles of water from ice melt and snow melt from the winter because we're up in the mountains in Colorado, and so the bug activity was just miserable. So every morning we would basically crawl out of a tree trunk that we had been hiding in for survival for survival simulation, right? Covered in ant bites and mosquito bites and. You know, we would carry our, our grungy, dirty, tired asses over to this fire pit where we would get the morning briefing and always hoping that the forest fire was going to cause an evacuation so that we could sleep in a hotel that night. Something, <laughs> right? And so miserable and so terrible. And, and you're eating like the weeds that you can find in the, in the area around you. And still, you know, every day they'd, that they'd come out and say, hey, there's no evacuation today. Training is on as scheduled. There was like this collective groan, but at the same time we're like, who like there's a thousand there's a hundred million people waking up to an alarm today, driving into an office to go, you know, slave their life away, typey typey. And I get to go, you know, just survive off the land and have this experience that nobody gets to have. So it's it's one of those it's a very addictive thing to push yourself to find out how your your brain and body can can be optimized and how they work together in concert and really understand kind of this amazing creation that is the world and life and the human the human body the human experience That's fantastic that's amazing
1: now when it comes to getting recruited to be in the cia how does that work now i'm gonna say this now andrew that you know there were two british guys here we are going to probably, over the course of this podcast, ask you some very basic questions. Um, So how does it work being recruited into the CIA?
3: Basic questions are my favorite kind, so I'm not worried about it at all. Okay, good. uh, (laughs) good. Are you in the right place? (laughs) There's no one way that CIA recruits. CIA recruits in multiple different ways. All of the intelligence services, all of the first world elite intelligence services, we all share recruiting tactics with one another. Okay. Like wow, okay. as 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 unromantic as it sounds, uh <laughs> you know, there's every intelligence service is still a government organization. Every government organization still has a human uh, a human resources HR component and every HR component in every government office is essentially the same, you know. It's just it's boring and painful and uh and frustrating and you've got to tie yourself to budgetary cycles and you know, there's always the one boss that half the people hate and the other half suck up to. <laughs> so that's just how it works. So in the HR world of secret intelligence recruiting, they have specific intelligence, uh, they have specific recruiting uh, processes, uh, strategies that they use. They know what kind of person they're looking for, what universities to search for. They know uh, what GPAs and what specific uh, like degree categories they're looking for. But then they also know that not every potential candidate is going to come from that cookie cutter um, ivy league background that there's a lot of really good talent that's hiding in other places so then they'll look in those you know off the beaten path kind of locations too because they've got the numbers they've got the math and the history to know that it's a statistically relevant group that they're hunting for so they'll look in the private sector they'll look for people in corporate uh, corporate positions like finance, corporate positions that have to do with accounting, uh, forensic investigations, uh, security operations, uh, even, even the operational side of manufacturing, the operational side of sales. Like there's a lot of the right skill sets naturally present in individuals that have those backgrounds. So when CIA or when MI6 or when Mossad or when, you know, DGSE, when any of them go to hire Yes, they're, of course, going to college fairs and they're taking resumes at college job fairs. Yes. And they're also going to uh, large security conferences. So where security professionals gather because they want to become law enforcement officers or they want to, you know, work in the next big corporate security office, they'll have a stand, they'll have a, a place there for them as well. But, of course, they're also very actively recruiting out of the military so that they can find former military intelligence officers, but also former military pilots, former military uh, researchers, former military scientists. Any, any skill set that, uh, that speaks to the critical thinking, speaks to the operational prioritization, speaks to uh, what we call uh, ethic or moral flexibility, which is the ability to quickly adapt your uh, willingness to commit things that other people might say are immoral or unethical. Uh, so for example, uh, if, if you're a police officer, you might think that it's unheard of to shoot an elderly person. But as soon as that elderly person pulls a gun and points it at you, you will shoot that elderly person, right? The actual response time for a person who's willing to process through that, that cognitive dissonance meaning they see an old person, they see a gun, the two things don't match up. Some people will freeze when they're given those two very, you know, uh, dissociative inputs. Other people will prioritize one input over the other. If they're the person who prioritizes the gun ahead of the elderly person, then that's a good fit for CIA. If they're the kind of person that prioritizes the elderly person ahead of the gun, then maybe not such a good fit for elite service to your country. So they'll recruit in all those different fashions. I was kind of a mix of, uh, of being recruited out of the military and also being picked up while I was in the application process to another government organization. So I was trying to leave the military and go into the Peace Corps, which is another federally funded organization. And in that process, I was intercepted by a, by a recruiter and invited to come to Washington, D.C.
2: I was going to ask you about the actual the actual process. So it actually sounds like quite a sort of straightforward um, recruitment process. You weren't given like a sort of empty empty briefcase and told to like meet under a tree in a certain location or something like that. It was actually it sounds like quite a sort of boring, straightforward HR kind of thing.
3: Exactly. And that's, that's the thing that is, I, I wish that it was more sexy and exciting because it would make <laughs> yeah. a better story. <laughs> But in in all honesty, if somebody were to show up at a restaurant, like if I were to be eating at a Chinese restaurant at 26 years old and they were to walk up with an empty briefcase and be like, you've got to meet me at the tree around the corner at 10 p.m., all you have to do is say the Mockingbird Sings and I'll know it's you. I don't know that I would have gone to that tree. I don't know that I would (laughs)
1: have.
3: I would have missed an entire career opportunity and not even known
1: it. (laughs) Yeah, that's totally fair. Did it ever cross your mind, though, when you were in the military to... I know you obviously said you were looking to go into the Peace Corps. Had it ever
3: crossed your mind about joining the CIA? You know, it's funny. The answer is yes. So, I mean, I don't know what it's like for a little boy in the UK, uh, or if you want to be, you know, if you want to be a part of the woke culture, a little person in the UK. But in the United States, you know, in the 1980s, every little boy wanted to be a police officer, a fireman, a spy Or a pilot—that was a fighter pilot. That's what we all wanted to be. So I was a 1980s little boy. So I grew up wanting all four of those things all the time. And for a long time, I thought I could be all four at the same time. Uh, But then, when I got into the military academy, when I got into the Air Force Academy, uh, I was very much on a track to be pilot. And uh, and that's where I really had to make a choice. You know, 21 years old with the right grades and the right physical aptitude. To pick between military intelligence and being a pilot, like actual pilot training, um, I chose military intelligence, and I put in my paperwork, and I said, "Hey, this is what I want to be." And that's when I came face to face with government bureaucracy, because the government came back and said, "You're going to be a pilot. We appreciate that you're you would be interested in military mm-hmm. intelligence, but there are better qualified people than you, uh, and your you know your background your your experience with the Air Force Academy and your seat height and your vision and your Mm. blood pressure, they all show that you would be optimized as a military pilot. So that's what you're going to be. I figured when the military told me that there are better people qualified than me just in the military, that there was no reason for me to ever even pursue something like CIA. Uh, And then I was really surprised when I left the the Air Force and the CIA tapped me on the shoulder because I was like, hold on, hold on. There were better people than me just in the Air Force. You're saying that in the entire United States, I am like on the list of people to be considered. So it it was a, a bit of a surprise, but it was a pleasant surprise.
2: It's guess almost quite romantic actually that, that had come full sort of full circle and actually that wish had then presented itself. I have to say, growing up, I was born in eighty four, so I'm a late eighties kid. Uh I wanted to be a footballer, <laughs> which I think is a lot of a lot of British kids want yeah, to I think want that. to be a yeah. too, footballer. Yeah footballer a cartoonist or a dinosaur Why <laughs> they one of those
3: two one of those, those is kind three. of possible
2: <laughs> yeah yeah but as we all know football is very hard yeah to yeah, into yeah. um so i have to the, the, sort of working for sort of uh clandestine you know mi6 like uh, anything like that for, for us here Ju- just even if someone had told me at that age you know you this might happen it it feels like it feels like, like otherworldly like it feels like completely unsurmountable I don't know if that's the same thing you felt, but like it just it feels like it's just not something I'd say not even people like me anybody gets into it. like I wouldn't even know where to start with that, so I don't know if yeah it never it never even sort of crossed my mind.
3: Well, it's funny. The reason I think it crosses our mind in the U.S. is because there's there's a lot of spy fiction in the U.S. I mean, we have children's shows called Spy Kids, you, <laughs> it's not that we have any idea what spying is. We all think that it's gadgets and mm-hmm. uh, and half naked women and fast cars and you know people just throwing money at you, so you get to every undercover every undercover identity is a. a billionaire an eccentric billionaire like <laughs> yeah. right like yeah. uh like something you see in the marvel universe so that's what we're what we kind of expect it to be uh and then it's it's of course it's nothing like that in real life because if you're going to be undercover if you're going to keep a secret you have to be completely and totally uninteresting not just un like not just uh, uh unknown and undesirable but completely and totally like boring almost repulsive because if you want to be forgotten you have to be so non-alerting that people even when they see you they don't want to remember you they want to fill their their short-term memory with something other than your face and your smell and the things that you said so it's an extremely different world than what you see in the movies
2: but at that, that point, you're like, you're like, oh, thanks, yeah. Thanks I was going to say, come, it yeah. slightly Brilliant. changes the
1: the, the headhunting yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing of it.
2: Like, oh, really, guys? I mean,
3: <laughs> yeah. So, so it's it's interesting because it is surreal when they tap you on the shoulder. It's absolutely surreal every step of the of the recruitment process. You go through these psychological batteries, and you get these questions, and you go through these role plays, and you're you're writing these you know reports that you're like, I can't believe I get to do this. And then at the same time, the the more that you train in the professional side of clandestine service, the more you realize like, oh, my gosh, I am basically pretending to be a low-level administrator in a company of people who hate me. And even if they (laughs) did know who I was, even if I was real – There isn't a single cubicle in this entire office building who would want me to come knock on the door and say, (laughs) you want to have lunch with me, right? It's like, it's the most alone experience that, that you can kind of imagine because your true community is all hidden. You have hundreds of people supporting you and you know who they are, but they're all equally just as undesirable and ignored in their undercover positions as you are. So your entire network is this secret network of people that no one pays attention to.
2: So that, I guess there's two two emotions there. That must, it must feel quite, maybe lonely, I guess, in a way that you're putting yourself into these situations where you are kind of a loner. But at the same time, quite exciting that you know it's part of something bigger and you've, you've got all these secret things alongside you. But I guess maybe as a third question, you're trying to eradicate those feelings because actually you are just trying to be almost like an actor, aren't you? Just just play this boring role. So maybe you got sort of conflicting emotions in there.
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. It's funny that you bring up acting because acting is one of those areas that uh, that we discuss quite frequently on the inside, especially as we're learning how to live out our cover. So the the closest comparison in the acting world is um, uh, method acting. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is that right? Yeah. I think it's method acting, yeah. where, the, where the actor becomes the character yeah. in their full-time life Yeah. So that when the camera's on or when the camera's off, they're never outside of that mind space. That's the closest comparison we have, except that we are taught that we need to method act with a certain compartmentalization technique in our brain so that we can compartmentalize the fact that we know who we really are and that we're really there to collect sensitive secrets. So then we can still play the role 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But whenever we we don't ever lose sight of the fact that we are there to collect a very specific piece of information against a specific objective. So we're always driving the, the character we're always driving the character to, to uh, pursue a specific outcome. Whereas a method actor is generally just a character reacting Mm -hmm. to their environment. So it's two very different uh, approaches, but we don't get the luxury of then, you know, going insane and doing drugs and, uh, and <laughs> and making making back payments off of the success of our movies, we just get paid a flat government rate. <laughs> <laughs> <In> <laughs> exactly. A way.
2: I wonder if actually maybe a lot of sort of CIA agents maybe because that it actually sounds to me like you've got more skills than an actor in a, in a way. But actually, a lot of them would make quite good actors, I guess.
3: You know, it's interesting. There, there's a big uh, big overlap between former intelligence, former CIA, and the entertainment industry. Some go on to be actors, but, you know, others go on to be writers. They go on to be fiction writers. They go on to become screenwriters. They go on to become uh, um, advisors on spy films or action films or military films. So, yeah, the the thing that is never lacking from CIA is ego. Ego is a huge driver among all CIA officers, all elite intelligence services. Uh, and it sounds like that would be, you know, counterintuitive because, if you have an ego, how are you going to ever be satisfied being a low-level bureaucrat in, you know, mm-hmm. thrown into the world where you can only ever drive a Nissan and you can't wear a shirt that costs more than $50, right? Yes. So the, the way that ego plays in is because that secret network that we were talking about, the, the reason you don't feel totally alone, all that secret network does is it acts as an echo chamber where it keeps telling itself how special and how important and how valuable everyone in that secret yeah. network is. So 10, 15, 20 years of a career in that world. And all of a sudden you think like, I'm the most important person in the universe. The whole yeah. world needs me. The world needs me. And they don't even know I exist. That's how important I am, right? It's, it becomes a very unhealthy echo chamber Ooh. if you're not careful.
2: D- does that mean there's a certain time frame, career-wise for people in this kind of role that actually you can only be there a certain time before it actually really does start to sort of play with your mind
3: yeah you know so i would say once you're there for three or four years you're really kind of drinking the kool-aid once you're Mm -hmm. there we call it so basically we, we we measure our time in tours so a tour is generally speaking somewhere between two and four years so if you're a first tour officer, you've been in the CIA for less than four years. If you're a second tour officer, you've been in the CIA for less than eight years, right? It's, we, it's basically how we measure our time. And uh, and for the most part, first and second tour officers are seen as junior officers. If you've been in for two tours, you're still pretty junior, which means when when they talk about junior, what they're talking about is there's certain... Responsibilities, certain decisions that you're not really included in, because you might still make the idealistic choice. You mm-hmm. might still make like the non-practical choice. You might still believe that you're there to serve, you know, the higher cause of justice and freedom across America, uh, instead of realizing that you're actually there to steal secrets and give those secrets to the White House. Like, let's let's be very focused about what you are yeah. if you're going to become a third or fourth tour officer. So it's in that third and fourth tour, somewhere between eight and 15 years, that's where we all go through that very difficult growth phase, where we realize we are just disposable resources, that if we get shot tomorrow, there's 500 people that are lined up, ready to come in and and be the next round of people who have a humongous ego and feel like they're the the best gift to their country. So we start to realize we're disposable resources in terms of our life and our biology, But we're also disposable resources in terms of our our knowledge and our skill set. You know, China's interesting now. It wasn't interesting 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Russia's interesting now. It wasn't interesting five years ago. So you build an entire career specializing in some topic. And then whatever the administration chooses is what is the flavor of the day. So imagine being 20, 25 years into your career. You're the, the foremost expert on Mozambique. And then nobody cares about Mozambique. And now in your sunset, you know, the sunset of your career, you're basically forgotten even by that internal community that you've come to rely on. So there's, there's always this, uh, this piece that, that shows you how you, you aren't as important as you think you are. Uh, and if you, if you stay on past that fourth tour, if you make it four or five tours into CIA, now you've basically got nowhere else to turn. You're, your what are your marketable skills? What is your network? You don't have any place else to go, so now you kind of are stuck on the path of getting that government retirement and then trying to make whatever you can out of your reputation after you leave.
1: I'm just thinking obviously you talked about the large egos that are involved in in the work, and um, how that must how big an impact that must have on those people having to go through that scenario that you've just spelled out with regards to like, you are kind of washed up, you're worthless almost to a certain extent and how bruising that must be for some of those egos.
3: Yeah, it's, it's very real. It's very true. And uh, the ego bruising starts quite a bit earlier. It's just that, you know, as you get older, bruises take longer to heal, mm. right? I remember being 11 or 15 and I would get a bruise on my shin and three days later it'd be gone. And now at 42, I get a bruise on my arm and it's still with me for two more weeks. <laughs> So yeah, right. So when you are that retired 60 something year old security professional, and you really have done amazing things that the world doesn't know about. And then when you retire, you know, you, you don't get a Rolex, you don't get a big fat paycheck. You don't get a high five. You don't even get like a medal of service. You kind of get a, a nice government dinner catered by a government caterer (laughs) and, and they send you home. And then, you know, assuming that you are comfortable living off of your 60% retirement, you know, because you're going to be making 60% of your base pay. That's how the government, uh, the government retirement system works in the US. Once you start trying to go for a job, you think that you qualify for a senior executive position in a corporate 100 company, right? But you, you don't, you don't really qualify for anything except a high level position in the intelligence world. Anywhere else you try to go, you essentially have to start all over again.
2: Man, that that's really mad, and I'm just I'm just wondering as you're talking there, like is is there, like aftercare? Is there like CIA CIA aftercare? Because I'm guessing those people that you're talking about going home, they're just sort of like sitting with their secrets that they can't tell anyone, so they they must need some sort of. Therapy or counseling or something like that to kind of work through those years of service?
3: Yeah, so so you know, it's funny, aftercare, just this is a one of those funny UK American things. In the US, aftercare is what you give to old people who are going insane. You give them <laughs> right. aftercare. Okay, okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, not quite what I was trying to get. This.
3: In the United States, what we call what you're referencing is something that we call a transition, government transition okay. or right. military transition. Um, which for all I know, transition is the UK word for dealing with... I don't know. Actually, <laughs> do you know what? It could be. <laughs> <Ashley>. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, when... So the, the military has done a really good job because remember, you've got to... We've got to always take the context of history here as well as, as part of our calculation. The military has, for a long time, the US military and all militaries have had to deal with people who sign up and then they leave mid-career. They sign up and they leave. They sign up and they leave. So there's this requirement for transition so that you know military members who have uh, been has seen trauma lived through trauma who have been given military secrets whether that's you know how a tank works or what kind of munition works best against whatever you know those people need to go through some kind of transition training so that they can uh, they can rejoin civilian life in a healthy yeah. manageable way cia in comparison cia has until 2001 was always a very small organization where basically they had less than 0.5% attrition. And that 0.5% was essentially people who were retiring. And when they would retire, they would come right back in the next day as a government contractor. So they would spend their entire adult and their, like, until they basically fell into a casket, they would come back to work at the same building they had always worked at. So that was the tradition before 9-11. And then once 9/11 hit, that's when that tradition started to change. So post 9/11, that's when CIA started discovering that transition was even a problem, that attrition could exceed two percent, three percent, five percent. Right now, CIA's attrition rate is as as a it's at a, a record high. Um, there are num- there are numbers that come out that say that they're losing as many as one undercover officer every single day, wow. leaving service. Oh, wow. So six months to train an undercover officer, one or two tours in the field, and then they leave. Um, that's something that the agency has never dealt with. And that's a very difficult challenge for, uh, for a public organization to very quickly adapt. Um, but that's, I think, to your point, Jim, uh, there is no transition support. There's no aftercare support. Because they've never, it's never been a problem to them before. When you look at the history of uh, of espionage cases in the United States in the last ten years, there's been a very distinct spike in new espionage cases from China, from Russia, from France, from uh, from all over the all over the world. Anybody who's an enemy or even an ally of the United States are spying on the United States, and they know that you know CIA, NSA, DIA, FBI are all struggling with these mandates for higher recruiting, uh, but also dealing with a younger generation that doesn't really like to be told what to do in the government way. Mm. Yeah,
1: I'm just thinking about secrets and keeping secrets and the advantage of keeping secrets. Um, And I wonder also if it's harder to keep secrets in in the 21st century than it possibly was to some of your CIA ancestors. Would that be a fair assumption that it's harder to keep secrets now?
3: Yeah, I would say that, uh, (laughs) so the, the, the intelligence professional in me kind of wants to dig into this question a lot, uh, because this is such a fascinating question. So I would say the idea that keeping secrets is an advantage is kind of a flawed idea. What's really the advantage is the perception that you can keep secrets. When you, Mm. when you actually know how to use secrets, that's the bigger advantage. If you tell me something about Jim and Jim thinks that there's nothing that you told me and you believe that I'm keeping it a secret, but I'm actually telling somebody else and using that secret to gain some other advantage that's the real advantage to a secret. You think I'm keeping the secret, which means you're going to give me more secrets. Jim doesn't even know it's happening, and I'm getting some third party on the outside who's not even connected to either of you to give me something else in exchange for that secret. Right? That's what makes secrets so valuable. Is when people sell them, barter them, trade them, use them, but nobody knows that it's happening. Mm. Now, to that same question, is it easier or harder to keep a secret? It's easy to say that it's hard to keep a secret because of the digital era that we live in. Everything's interconnected. You know, if you've got your phone in your pocket, somebody knows where you are. You can't even keep it a secret. You know what you're searching for. You can use a incognito window or a VPN. There's still a data trail that Mm -hmm. tells everybody or tells somebody somewhere what you're doing. So I would say that to the extent that you can be discoverable. Yes, it's harder to keep a secret. However, Part of secrets is also keeping them from being discovered, not just being discoverable, but actually being found. And there has never been an easier time in the world to hide in plain sight, to bury a secret under a a pile of noise, right? Your your proverbial needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. So now, yes, we might know exactly where Jim is sitting in a restaurant when he eats his dinner tonight, but he's hidden among hundreds of billions of people who are sending hundreds of billions of signals about where they're also sitting right now at dinner so it's going to take a great deal of effort to try to uncover that secret about jim
2: that is fascinating although i will say firstly as a stand-up comedian i I tell all my secrets on stage so there's no secret you can get from giles about me (laughs) that's literally my job just to tell everyone even if they don't want to hear it you're going to hear my secrets mate so that's just yeah um that's interesting because I would have I thought that like um, it, messages can be intercepted now and, and people can be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, you can um, you can get people's information off of each other and stuff. Whereas back in the day, like if you had a, a briefcase with a really good lock on it, then that was a better way. But it's interesting to say about the, the noise. And we talk on this podcast quite a lot about like the sort of digital noise and how it's hard sometimes to find meaning in it or find any sort of useful information but actually on the flip side i never really thought that that noise could be useful to someone trying to hide something because there is so much of it out there
3: and that's the difference between you know amateur espionage and professional espionage um and i and when i talk about amateur espionage i'm i'm talking about what we watch a lot of times in spy fiction Mm. is amateurized so you know you think that if you if two people walk into a room and you want to hide one of those people, then what you need to do is put a wig on them and put a fake face on them and make them look like they gained 50 extra pounds and then you know put this nondescript hat on them and let them just walk right through. And then if these two men walk down the hallway, no one's gonna notice that one guy. Where a professional says, if you wanna hide someone, then of the two people who walk in, all you have to do is make the other guy yell fire. And if the other guy yells fire, Everyone in the building is going to look at the other guy and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, dressed up like a drag queen. Nobody's going to remember you because you're hiding in plain sight, right? It's all about the distraction. It's all about taking advantage of of a human's natural inclinations towards change, survival, you know, survival, fear. If you can trigger natural human responses, then that's more valuable than the most expensive disguise.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. I've got a really quick question about, because you were saying before about a lot of um, uh, ex-CIA people might go into the arts or creative, t- uh, you know, Hollywood that kind of yeah, thing, writing yeah. and stuff. Does that mean that the movies we watch, the spy movies, are true? I guess depending on who's worked on it. Are they true to form? Are they not? Are they intentionally amateurized? Or are there some? Are there any you can think of where you think, fuck that's actually really really close to, to what it was
3: so there are some that are really quite close um but those that be, that get really close are close because that was the director's intent mm. right so mm. tinker taylor soldier spy is very close mm. the first season of the americans is actually quite close there's these really good examples of tradecraft and some really good examples of uh of how the bureaucracy works the first season of i think it was jack reacher not jack reacher um Oh, I forget the name now. the The gent that was in the office who went on to make a spy series on Amazon.
1: Oh, oh yeah, J- John Krasinski. The, yes, that
3: yes, guy, yeah. yes, yes. Whatever his show was, yeah. the first season of that show was also really quite good because it was pretty accurate. Uh, and and to the director's credit, they bring in advisors who give them advice, mm. and then the director follows the advice. But then, if you look at a show like Gray Man, right? I know the gentleman who was the advisor for Gray Man. And basically everything he suggested, the directors just like, they overruled it. They're like, we can't, <laughs> we can't make a movie about that. The guy can't do that. Like, wait, yeah. you're telling me that in the street right now, he would just walk down the street with his head down? No, that's, that's not going to work for us. So we're going to do this instead. And then we're yeah. going to do that. And you just tell us if he was going to carry a gun. What kind of gun would he carry? Oh no, he he yeah, would yeah. never carry a gun. No, no, no. I get that. I get that. But if he was, <laughs> yeah. what would that gun be? <laughs> so that and that's the big, you know, that's the inside joke that we have with each other when we get called and do entertainment. Is it's just like you know why we're not advising anybody. You they're they're just telling they're they're literally yeah. letting us give our advice so they can ignore it and then they yeah. make up a scenario and they want our thoughts on that made up scenario. I was like, you'd be better off just getting a getting a creative teenager to come in and give you that data, you pay them a fifth as much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh,
1: going back to being out in the field and, and actually, I mean, we, you talked about disguises there kind of uh, jokingly, but I guess you are having to wear disguises. Are there levels of disguises? Are there different scenarios that you have to put yourself into when you're actually out in the field? And there's one other a caveat to that is also when you're out in the field, you must get into some quite intense moments, and how do you, you know, how are you able to sort of control yourself in those moments? And I guess that's part of your skills as as a, as an agent.
3: Yeah, and it's it's great. You're, these are two great questions. They're not as related as I, I think we would hope they would be, but because uh, oftentimes a disguise is to keep the heat away, mm-hmm. and then if you're in a disguise and the heat happens anyways, it's there's not a lot of graceful solutions to how to get out of that one. But uh, but I will say that. The, a big part of why my company, Everyday Spy, has taken off, uh, and I've been very blessed to have a successful company, is because people have these questions and they realize how you can apply the answers to business. You can apply the answers to everyday life, to building your career or gaining an unfair advantage in the workplace. Now, on the disguise side, disguise is just fun. There's a ton of fun parts about disguise. There's three levels to disguise. Um There's a level one, level two, and level three. And this is, you know, largely boiled down. A a disguise professional, which we call a costume professional, but a disguise professional at CIA would cringe with this oversimplification. But basically, you have the kind of disguise that you can just don at any moment in time. A hat, a jacket, sunglasses, whatever it might be. That's all level one. It's sometimes called throwaway disguise or disposable disguise. Uh, The second level of disguise, level two has to do with long-term disguise. This is a disguise where you're going to be undercover for six months, nine months, two years. Uh, You don't know if someone's going to come into your room in the middle of the night. You don't know if someone's going to basically strip search you when you try to go through an airport. So when you have that kind of disguise, you can't wear a fake nose. You can't put in a fake tooth. You have to be very, very real. So if that means you very realistically gain 15 pounds, then you go gain 15 pounds. Or if you have to get super fit, then you'll spend six months getting into fantastic shape. Shave your head, get a tattoo, uh, you know, whatever. Go through dental or oral surgery if you need to get a fake tooth put in or a couple tooth pulled out. Whatever you're doing, it's very, very real in level two. And then in level three, that's your Prosthetics. That's your disguises where you have custom-made foreheads and custom-made cheekbones and fake blacked-out teeth and you change the color of your hair. Uh, But at the end of the day, all the fake comes off and the real person lays down in their bed to go to sleep at night. So it's that third level that makes it into the movies, but that third level is actually the most dangerous, Mm. the highest risk, and the the least valuable of all the disguise levels. Because if you arrest somebody in level two they'll never look like they're in a disguise. If you arrest somebody in level 1, you take off their sunglasses, you take off their hat. They still aren't in a disguise. But if you arrest somebody in level 3, you rip off their nose, you, you know, pull off their fake mustache and now you're like you're a spy mm. and you're going to jail for the rest of your life. Not in your own country, in the foreign mm. country where you were captured. Mm. So that stuff is is nasty we don't want that to happen. So that's why our disguise and costume professionals prepare us for level one and level two in almost all situations. To go to your second question about, you know, how do you deal with some intense situations? The The single most important factor when things get nasty is dealing with the traumatic spike in your emotions. So PTSD, post-traumatic post-traum- post, uh, stress disorder, is all caused by a chemical overload of the amygdala in the brain. Um, and the amygdala is everyone has one, and it's, it's basically accustomed to taking a certain amount of stress at any given time. But whenever that amygdala experiences more stress than it can handle, it basically short-circuits. And unlike the circuits in your house, you can't take out the amygdala and put a new one in. So once it short-circuits, it's short-circuited forever. So CI is very focused on making sure that we constantly increase the load capacity for our amygdala, they do that by increasing the amount of stress that we're exposed to throughout training uh, so that anytime we experience something in the field, that's not the first time we've seen it. So we mm-hmm. see what it's like to be hunted. We see what it's like to be captured. We see what it's like to be, uh, to be interrogated. We see what it's like to be you know stressed out in training environments multiple times. So that And, and we try to, they try to give it to us at such a high level that it's more extreme than we'd ever see in the field. And then, on top of that, they give us stress coping mechanisms. So, if we do find ourselves under stress in the field, we can use science backed coping mechanisms. I'm not talking about like kumbaya meditation, where's my banjo kind of stuff. I mean, like, you know, breathing techniques and, uh, you know, different physical exercises, uh, mindfulness exercises that are backed in science that they know can rapidly reduce stress in a very short period of time. And some of those techniques have gone on. I've been able to teach those to police officers and teachers and corporate executives because they also live in a world where they know what it's like to have extreme spikes in stress. Uh, and they, if, if you've had so much stress that you actually feel your physiology changing, your eyes start twitching or your cheeks start twitching, you know what it's like to reach the, the tip of your amygdala's capacity. And it starts to short circuit the way your body normally works. So you start losing control of bodily functions and it's extremely unnerving. Um, so it's comforting to them to know that, that they can preserve their amygdala with a few simple exercises.
2: Yeah, that's great. And it, it's nice to know those, that those skills are transferable as well to, to people in other areas and, as you say, to help with, with, with high levels of of stress. It must be hard trying to replicate that in training. You know, again, it, there's a long-running joke, Andrew, on the podcast that I try and get football into every episode. I'm about to do it again now, so... Um, <laughs> But like, you know, footballers always say like, well, we train and train and train, but it's very different to play in a game, you know, very different to playing in front of 60,000 people. Like that is a different pressure you can't replicate in training. And it must be kind of similar maybe to CIA training. You're training for these stressful situations, but actually in the situation when you're there at work, it, it must be difficult to replicate that. It's still a different feeling, different level of stress, no matter how much you train for that situation.
3: Yeah, it's true. And I would say it's actually the opposite of what your footballers are telling you. So... <laughs> When we train, we're almost always being observed and you're being observed by this panel of people who have no interest in being nice to you. Like they're the most (laughs) critical panel you can imagine. So every mistake you make in training is hyper criticized and, you know, you never walk away from nobody goes to train it. I remember in the corporate America when I was in the corporate world after I left CIA Training was always a joke. People were like, oh, it's a training day. This is going to be easy. I'm going to stay up late drinking the night before. I'm not really going to pay attention. It's basically a day off. At CIA, when you had to go to training, people were like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be (laughs) miserable. I need to sleep in two nights before. I need to get myself clean. I need to get ready for this because it's going to be like just devastating, right? So uh, for us in the field, nobody's watching. In the field, if you screw up basically nobody knows that you screwed up. So unless you get caught, unless you screw up so much that you end up in prison, even in prison, nobody's judging you. They're just beating you. And and to certain (laughs) extents, like that may not be as bad. But, uh, But if you make a mistake, if you fumble with the wrong word, or if you don't, you know, if you make a pitch and they don't accept the pitch, or if you forget a detail from a secret that they give you, nobody knows. And you just, you do the best you can. And you come back and you admit to your own errors and you're like, hey, they gave me so much more than this, but, you know, I don't have the technical jargon to understand half of what they're talking about. So I'm going to have another meeting in two or three more weeks and I'm going to try and bring a, an, engine, an undercover engineer with me and hopefully that person will help me do a better job, help me get more information out of the person. So it's a much more forgiving experience in the field than it is in training, which is quite different than your, fo- your footballer example.
2: Yeah, very, very different. I, I, and when when would anyone trust a footballer? Literally never. So, uh, <laughs> don't, but that, that's really interesting because in my head, and again, these, these are probably sort of very basic questions for your ex- experience, but like in my head, like when agents are out in the field, they are being monitored by someone. Someone somewhere in a van is monitoring them or something. But actually, from what you're saying, they really are sort of on their own.
3: Because if you've done everything else right, nobody even knows you're there, Right. If I've done everything right, when I get onto a plane in the United States, no matter where I get off the plane, nobody even knows that I am what I truly am. They just see a, a, a passport number and a name on the passport and I cross a border somewhere and somebody gives me a stamp because the person who gives me a stamp is thinking about getting off work. They're not thinking about looking for spies. And then I go do my thing all day long, collect my secrets do whatever I'm doing, I get back on, I cross another border, I get another stamp because that person again is just thinking about, you know, the indigestion from lunch. And then I'm (laughs) on a plane and I come back to the United States. If I, if you do everything right, if everything works, nobody even knows you were there. It's only when you are not a professional that you end up having an action movie.
2: Mm. but that's when <laughs> nobody wants that but that that's that's mad though because that from what you're saying like the training is so good at the cia that they don't even know where you are and they're kind of like sending you out being like well i hope andrew comes back i hope he doesn't just run off somewhere and go and join some somebody else like there must be a level of trust there that they're like oh, yeah. well we've trained him to a level we think he's so good we hope he's gonna come back but like yeah, you're just out there
3: yeah we we have these uh what we call comma windows communication windows so it's essentially, it's a sign of life, but it's also a, play, a chance to give a status update. And those comma windows are usually about 24 hours. Sometimes they go as long as 72 hours or more, but for the mm-hmm. most part, it's about 24 hours. So, you know, I'm going to high five you uh, or, or uh, Giles first thing in the morning. I'm going to be, Hey, I'm out. I'll see you guys later. I'm going to Kuala Lumpur. And then you won't hear from me for like 24 hours later. I'll send you a quick three, three paragraph update. Hey, plane ride was safe nothing, nothing interesting, made it to the hotel. Uh, here's my room number in case, you know, you ever need it in the future. If you need to you know, evacuate me or something, but, uh, but I'm on, I'm good to go ready for tomorrow, the end. And then 24 hours later, or 48 hours later, met the guy, got the secrets. Everything's good. You know, I'm writing a detailed report. I'll send it in encrypted channels, circa 6 AM tomorrow, Eastern time. Right. And then you don't hear from me again until you get the encrypted report. And you know four or five days because every time there's communication you're introducing an opportunity for vulnerability mm. so you want to minimize communication the way you do that is by maximizing training and maximizing trust yeah are you able to talk about any of the
2: the missions you've done and stuff or is that is that one of the things that you can't talk about post-leaving
3: yeah, that's exactly it. So the, the one area that we're not allowed to disclose when we leave without express permission is our own specific operational background. So I can paint in broad strokes. I specialized in, in Asia and in East Asia. You can tell that from the language that I learned when I was in the military. Um, my travel profile, uh, whether you look at my travel profile undercover or overtly, it's I've got a lot of experience in uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia. So and I'm a brown guy. A brown guy does very well in Asia because Asia is the most racist continent in the world. They don't they don't ever think a brown guy is dangerous. So it was just a really good fit for me to go have fun, you know, in the land of the rising sun and such where uh, where nobody really took me seriously. It was a perfect so place to blend in.
2: That's all sort of playing on sort of cultural perceptions as well to your advantage.
3: Yep, exactly right. If you were to send a white person to the UK, if you were to send a white 45-year-old male with disheveled brown hair and who hadn't shaved his morning beard, he'd basically be able to walk through the UK without anybody noticing. Oh,
2: wait, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> wait, am I a spy? <laughs> <laughs> Hang
3: on. That's how good you I, are. Yeah. That explains a lot.
2: That explains like I so lonely. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. No, I, I only asked. I, I assumed that was the question. Absolutely assumed that was that was the answer. And and, and that would be one of the stipulations. But are, are you able to talk to us in broad strokes about any situations where, you know, you really felt, I don't know, maybe the window had been 72 hours and you really felt alone and, and you're in situations where you really had to put kind of some of that stress level training into 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 practice and maybe where you really felt things were a bit a bit dicey and how you came through that and I'll I'll say that with the caveat that you know this podcast is about blank moments and we don't normally have anyone with high stakes blank moments like this you know it's normally performers talking about going blank on stage Um, but I'm just wondering if you've ever had anything like that where you really have had to sort of kick in the training kick in in that moment
3: yeah absolutely i mean there's there's been several moments like that in life but let me give you one that's probably the most powerful for me um and then in in very to be very transparent i also uh, i have to jump after this story most likely uh, to move on to my next commitment no worries. but uh okay. but i was uh, i was on operation i was in uh, a part of asia that i can't disclose as of this time i've got permission out with cia asking them to allow me to disclose the larger story. Uh, but I was fairly certain that I had been discovered. I was fairly certain that uh, from, the, from the surveillance that I discovered following me to the scenarios that were presented to me, I was almost certain that I had become not just uh, a person of sus- like a suspicious person, but a suspected intelligence operative operating in a foreign country. So it was an extremely scary moment for me. And, and it was completely and totally unexpected. Uh, in all of the security briefings and all of the mission planning and all of the prep work that we had done before I deployed, uh, we had all come back with very high confidence that that it would be a, a fairly successful mission. It's a mission that we had repeated several times beforehand, that I had repeated several times beforehand, and there was no history of any kind of mi- mistake or overlap. So in that moment, when I was able to confirm a surveillance team was in fact following me and that that surveillance team was a a well-equipped advanced sophisticated surveillance units it was it was a kind of an oh shit moment where Mm -hmm. i i felt every ounce of the loneliness i felt every piece of the fear um i had the thought of not seeing my wife again i had the thought of you know not seeing the the life that i was trying to build i was trying to have a family i was trying to have children i was trying to you know make something uh make something memorable and yeah. in this blank to use your term in this blank space you know it when when you take everything else away the things that fill up emptiness are the things that are overflowing right it's uh it's like a vacuum and the things that came in were just i realized how much i loved my spouse i realized how much i loved you know Chinese food and, and being able to swim in water that's room temperature in Florida and all these silly little things that, uh, that I take for granted all the time. And then I also realized that the longer I let myself dwell in that moment, the more at risk I was Mm -hmm. of never seeing those things that I cared about. So I don't know how long that period lasted, that kind of realization, but uh, whether it was microseconds or seconds, you know, they, they ticked across in very real heartbeats. Uh, and then we had to, and then I just I I was thankfully trained well enough that I fell into that training regime. And it was a matter of breathing techniques, and it was a matter of advanced counter-surveillance techniques, and it was a matter of using time to my advantage and anticipating human behavior and realizing that, to a certain extent, we always have to realize that we know we are spies we know it every minute of every day but to everyone else if they suspect that we are spies there's still a shadow of a doubt so you have to you have to gamble hard on that shadow of a doubt because so people will refrain from taking the right action when they have the shadow of doubt so that was essentially what we had to what i had to do to get out of that moment was was just play on what I knew would be their human, the entire surveillance team's human intention or human um, behavior is going to be to wait, to to observe, to react. So yeah. I always have first mover advantage. Uh, so when I took those actions, I was able to get myself to a place where I was able to get off the X. It was dicey at the end, but it still worked. Um, and once I was on a plane and the, the rear tires took off the ground, uh, that's when I finally took my collective sigh and realized that, I was going to I was going to give my wife a big hug and never go back to that country again. Oh, my
2: word, man. Well, thanks for. sharing. Yeah, thank It that. That probably wasn't easy to go back to that kind of place. So I really, really appreciate that. But before you jump off, do you want to just tell us about Everyday Spy and the work you do now?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So my company is called Everyday Spy. You can find it at everydayspy.com. Uh, I host a very popular uh, iTunes Top 1% podcast called The Everyday Espionage Podcast. And everything about my company, everything about my podcast, everything about my business is teaching real-world spy skills, spy tactics, spy strategies, and how they apply to everyday life, business life, personal life, relationships, fitness, health, wellness, whatever it might be. Uh, And I'm, I'm blessed to have an amazing following. I'm blessed to have an awesome customer base. We serve individuals and we serve corporations. Um, we've, uh, we've really seen some fantastic growth. And like so many people out there, I don't think we ever anticipated it. We just we started the business to try to do something that we cared about and teach people about espionage because we love, my wife and I, wife, my wife is former CIA also, um, but we both just love that life and we love that world and we, we want to continue to bring honor to the people who do that work. So uh, if you find us at everydayspy.com or on social media at everydayspy. Then we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to serve you.
2: Fantastic. Uh, it's Fantastic work and, and, and best of luck with the future and, and, and yeah, thanks for joining us. It's been could have chatted to you for yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I've made
1: so many <laughs> notes. This is the most notes I've ever written for a podcast. So thank you so much.
3: <laughs> My pleasure, Jensen. Thank you very much for uh, for the for the kind invite and for a chance to talk to a couple of boring UK chats. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> <Perfect. laughs> <laughs>
2: There you go, Andrew Bristamonte on the blank podcast, or was he on the blank podcast? No, he was, he was, and he's an ex spy, or is he actually an ex spy?
1: Well, uh, uh, there was one question I was, I was going to ask was, do you ever stop being? Um, do you what, In some respects, oh. you've got those skills instinctively in you, haven't you? So, do you ever stop looking over your shoulder, having conversations oh, yeah. in
2: a certain way? Maybe reading not, people, maybe. reading body language. I guess you're not working for anyone, so you're not having to collect information. But maybe you do still use those skills. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Well, that is something you would find out if you. Uh, if he could have been profiling us while we were <laughs> talking to. him. Have, I think he'd very quickly decide now nah, these guys aren't worth it. Um, <laughs> uh, Everyday spy is Andrew's company, so if you want to find out more, that's that's the place to go and mm. uh, and and check him out. And as you said, he's happy to work with, with anybody. So uh, yeah, do check him out. There'll be a link in the description below as well to uh, to check him out but uh, yeah fascinating guy I mean just you know really a really good chatter as well really mm. good talker so able to really sort of like describe some of those moments and those feelings and stuff yeah well. su- I would. Yeah, super,
1: super smart guy very erudite so yeah it was great to have him on and um, yeah really appreciate him giving us his time because he's a busy absolutely. guy absolutely
2: yeah and you know one of these different episodes for us and we've got a few more lined up over the next few weeks and months so um, if you've enjoyed this please get in contact because we need hear from people um but if you have and and you like these sort of like different themed episodes then please do let us know maybe that you've got someone in mind or a theme in mind for future guests and episode let us know and we'll try and make it happen because we want to you know make stuff that people obviously want to listen to Mm. um so get in contact with us at blank pod on pretty much any platform um and let us know and we'll try and make it happen but it's been i i found it absolutely fascinating uh, and it's been absolutely lovely having Andrew on the show. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like Jim says, if you want to get in
1: contact with us, you can. We're on all social media platforms apart from TikTok and Snapchat because that's for kids. Uh, so <laughs> you say that, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, and Jim. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the other ones, the more important ones we're on. And yeah, we up are at BlankPod. So please do get in contact with us. And uh, yeah, it'd be lovely to hear from you. And we'll see you again next week well we
2: won't see you but you'll no, hear us you'll hear from us oh <laughs> well, that, that sounds like a spy actually it's exactly yeah. what the cia would say i guess you'll hear from us you won't
1: see us but you in will 24 hours
2: time <laughs> exactly see you 24 hours yeah. actually it'll be 24 times seven yeah it'll be quite a long we'll be we'll be off the grid for quite a long time yeah yeah so take care of yourselves they'll be guys. sending
1: another agent in to try and find we'll, us we'll be replaced gone rogue. yeah
2: come yeah. right <laughs> they've gone rogue. That's what they always say about Jim and Giles. It's yeah. the most rogue podcast it's like out Tom there. Rogue. It, it isn't. It's very heard them for, for at least <laughs> 128 hours. <laughs> That's good maths. Anyway, uh, have a great week, everyone. And we'll see you again next week. Uh, goodbye.